Hey guys, this is Justin. In our latest episode of the Education of a Financial Planner podcast, Jack and our co-host Matt Ziegler had a detailed discussion on the intersection of factor investing and financial planning. Since it covers many of the topics that are of interest to the excess returns audience, we wanted to share it here as well. If you want to get future episodes of the Education of a Financial Planner, you can subscribe to it on any major podcast platform or subscribe to the Excess Returns channel on YouTube. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Jack Forehand and Matt Ziegler. Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunplan Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. Well, I'm excited we're doing this because I have a, a laundry list of things beyond this conversation, but a laundry list of things that I just want to talk through with you. And so this will be my my probably most undirectly prepared, but also long-term, the thing that I think about all the time, and this is part of how we got to be friends and even start this in the first place, and that's to talk about just factors, factor investing, multi-factor. And in, in my in my work, so the Sunpoint work, like a big part of why I'm why I joined this company was this this intersection in thinking about the investment capital and the human capital overlap when we deconstruct things with like factors so we understand what's driving alpha or what's driving an opportunity set and the behavioral biases, foibles, and other things that contribute. And that's that's like where you live all day because, you know, at seven o'clock at night, I hear you're drinking wine and coding these days. So that, that is what I'm doing. This will also be a good chance for you to put me under the heat lamp a little bit. You know, we're usually asking you a lot of these questions. So, uh, a chance for me to answer them. And, and and obviously it goes without saying that since I'm the editor, like if I don't like my answers, it's just never going to appear in the podcast. Um, I, so I would expect one, nothing less. Got to make the, myself look good, right? I mean, that, that's the number one goal here, but, uh, but I, I am looking forward to that. Well, good. The excess returns editorial department <laughs> reigns supreme. Of just me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You've ruled with an iron fist. So let's, let's start just like high level and I'm not going to put you on the spot with like the P's, but let's just start with definitionally. When you say what a factor is, like what's your, I'm um, um, newbie client and I say, hey, I know nothing, but I hear about this factor thing and that is pretty cool. Like, what do you say a factor is? Yeah, I mean, like, I can do the P's a little bit. I mean, it, it's something that should produce like an excess return over time. Um, and, you know, I, I could do a little bit of the P's because I think those are a good way to explain it. Like persistent being, it, it must be something that works over a long period of time. You know, you can't look at it over five years or 10 years or whatever and say, oh, you know, I've got a factor here. You, know, you you really want to see it work over a long period of time. And you also want to see it work across different market cycles. You know, you don't want to just see it work in a certain type of market. We've had a, you know, we've had a growth dominated market for a long time here. You might see some factors work in that type of market that wouldn't work in another market. So it's important that you see all kinds of different markets um, when you do it. So that, that's persistent. Um, per, pervasive is, you know, you just want to see it work across different things. So you want to see it work across different asset classes. You know, if, if it works in stocks, but it doesn't work anywhere else, that could be a problem. 
you want to see it work across different geographies. So if it works really well in the United States, but as soon as I take it to any other country, it doesn't work. Well, then that's a problem. So we're just trying to find something that's, that's kind of broad across a lot of different things that, that works really well. Um, you know, no matter how you look at it and, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to work forever. It doesn't mean it's going to work all the time. It just means that we're trying to like find some consistency across that. And, you know, some, some of the other quick ones are, you know, it should work no matter how you define it. So, or at least over a broad set of definitions. So for instance, if I'm a value investor and I use the PE ratio, but as soon as I start using anything other than the PE ratio, it stops working. Well, that's obviously problematic because that means I can define value in a lot of different ways with earnings or sales or book or, or a bunch of different things. And, and if only one of them works, then, you know, that, that's probably not a great factor. And the other thing, and this is sort of up for debate for the shorter term guys, but for the longer term guys, we want it to be intuitive. So we want it to make some sort of sense. Like I can't just say some random thing about, you know, what, whatever's going on in some random place, like has to do with stock returns and have no reason to believe that that, that actually impacts stock returns. Like I want to have a reason to think it's going to work in the future. Now, some of the short-term guys, like the Renaissance guys, actually like the opposite of that um, because they believe if something makes sense, what's going to happen is more and more people are going to start following the thing that makes sense and it's going to stop working. So a lot of the short-term guys actually like when they find something in the data that works over the short-term, but there's no reason. They can't explain it. They actually like that and they actually lean into that, but that's for like long-term factor investors. We don't do that. Kind of fun too, because the people that lean into the things that don't make sense by definition, confound the people who are focusing on the things that do make sense. Right. But I mean, you can't argue. I mean, those guys, it obviously has worked very well for them. So you certainly can't argue with the approach. I So this, the idea of it as like a durable opportunity, and I think the reason I'm so drawn to it in this intersection between the investment capital side and the human capital side and through the lens of like behavioral finance, because it's like these things exist for this reason. For something to be a durable opportunity, it also has to be, I hesitate to call it a durable mistake, but there's like a durable inefficiency that the factor is trying to exploit. Do you ever, do you think of it in terms of like the whole efficiency market thing and like as inefficiencies or how do you frame that in your mind? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's one of the things I think it was uh, Rob Arnott said when he was on our podcast is you, you want to like, you, you want to know who's on the other side of your trade and you, you want to know why they're giving you a return. Like in terms of it being durable, like like an example of that is, and this is not totally related to factors, but like in certain markets where people have to hedge their risk, that can be an opportunity from the on someone on the other side because those people are essentially purchasing insurance. So if you want to sell that insurance, you you probably will get a return over time. And so with factors is a little bit different. I mean, we typically look at it in two different ways. You know, one is you're either going to get a return because it's riskier. Um, so you, you expect in markets, and this doesn't always work that way, but with, with certain risks that are compensated risks, you expect if I take that risk, I get a better return. So that, that's one reason, you know, and the efficient market guys like the, you know, the uh, Fama, uh, Eugene Fama type guys will say basically, you know, that's the, that's it. That, that is really the reason you get the returns from factors. But other people will say, and, you know, this is something I believe that there's typically a mispricing. So the easiest one to explain is the value one. And so you effectively say, like forgetting about factor terms, if you think about like value companies, something's going wrong there typically. You know, for a stock to be cheap, something's going wrong. And typically people don't want to hold that kind of stuff. You know, everybody's selling it. They're like, this is a disaster. This is never going to turn around. Just sell it. And so as systematically people over and over keep doing that, you can argue a mispricing develops. People overestimate how bad things are. And across a basket of value stocks, if I buy them, I can benefit from that over time as that mispricing gets corrected. That doesn't mean every one of them, you know, it's, a lot of the mispricings are, are justified. Some of them are more than justified, but across a basket of them, we're sort of betting that we can benefit from, you know, buying these stocks where that mispricing exists. 
I'm pretty sure it's it's a Wes Gray thing, but it's just always been etched into my brain since I heard him say it first, which was people value momentum, both of them. It's people overreact to bad news and they underreact to the good news. So the idea is on the value factor, like I'm buying the overreaction to bad news at some point on the way down, but I'm betting on the behavioral overreaction to whatever that story is. And then on the recovery side, they're underreacting to the good news. So as stuff gets just less bad, and it's that idea, and I think we talked about this on another podcast before, where it's like just, it's a viable strategy. Like you don't, like momentum's kind of like you're going from like okay to good to great. Like that's your sliding scale. Like value investing, deep value investing, you could just be investing in the part of the curve that goes from terrible to like modestly awful. Like you don't even have to get all the way to good. You just need less bad on the value side. That's right. And I know you're a big reader of Mobison and that gets back to the idea of expectations and investing is that you always have to think about what is the price of something? What are the expectations that are embedded in that price? And how do I think things might be different than those expectations? Because obviously expensive stocks are expensive for a reason. Cheap stocks are cheap for a reason, for the most part. You know, so you, you want to understand those ex expectations are already embedded in there. And how do I think reality could be different than those expectations? How do you think, so let's just keep, I want to go down this rabbit hole just a little bit further with you because it's interesting. Uh, whether it's in the systematic models or whatever else. So we're identifying systematic mispricings based on some type of like misbehavior or behavior that might go counter to some rational logic. So somebody is, I'm going to dump this thing because it's gone down too much. It's a momentum investor selling and a value investor buying in this perfect little cartoon world we're living in. Um, on the flip side of that, like when you're building like value strategies, do you guys have stuff where you're thinking about, this is how we measure? It went from awful to modestly bad, and now that's all the value premium we want to ebb out of that? Or I guess I'm knocking at the door a multi-factor approach. Like how pure to the factor? Because yeah, value is kind of like, again, go from terrible to just modestly bad. This is really important. And this gets to that blend. When you speak about value specifically, this gets to the blend between value and quality which is, and you've got people on both sides of this argument. Um, you know, Greenblatt's Magic Formula is a great example of this. Greenblatt's Magic Formula has two criteria. One is a value, we don't have to get into exactly what they were, but one is a value criteria, is the company cheap? The other is a quality criteria, is the company of high quality? And so our friend Tobias Carla looked at that and, and basically what he did is he said, all right, here's the return to the overall magic formula, but what if I carve out just the value? And the answer to that sort of gets at the answer to your question, which is if you go deep value, Typically, he found that the better performance was only half the magic formula. So if I only followed the value part, I got better performance, but with a huge caveat, which is it was way, way harder to stick with it. Because when you start adding quality, you know, think about it. Like if, if I have a really cheap company, something's going really wrong. Think about the divergence of, po of possible outcomes I've got there. That could be a great outcome. That could be a really bad outcome. Um, this probably gets back to your awful, you know, your, your AAA framework. But, you know, you have a right. range of outcomes. As you start going up the quality scale, I get a better company. I'm tightening that range up. So I may not get as much of a return. I'm not taking as much of a risk with it. But, you know, yeah, but I get a much smoother ride in terms of trying to get there. And, and so that's the way I think about value and quality is, you know, it, it, there's no right answer. There, there's great guys who Buffett is an example of somebody who's used value and quality their whole career. There's great guys that are deep value guys. But it's really a personal thing. It's really what you can stick with and it, what you believe in. Highlighter on that point. It's a personal thing and what you can stick with. And I think this is the this is the root of my fascination for basically my entire career in finance over factor investing and and 
Greenblatt's magic formula was one of the first thing that I was like, I just totally intuitively get this. I'm wired to think this way. I'm wired to think counter trend and think value, but I'm also not dumb in the sense that like quality makes sense to me. And then because I assume other people are flawed in other ways or wired in different ways, momentum makes a lot of sense. So let's, let's, let's go to multi-factor. Let's, let's talk about how we blend these things together and how this exists. So single factor, like you just said, like validity, value and quality, we're, we're talking about putting the, the chocolate ice cream and the vanilla ice cream next to each other. Sometimes you can add a little strawberry in for Neapolitan personal favorite. Um, but like, how do you think about isolating a factor versus blending factors, plural? Yeah, we, we try not to isolate factors. And the reason is, you know, if you're a value investor, you understand the exact reason, because we just went through a decade where value didn't work. And all of these things, no matter what they are, have these long periods where they don't work. And by the way, it can, it can be different on the factors. Like you, you would think maybe value would have less of those periods, but it actually has the most. And momentum actually is a little bit more consistent over time. So people might, people kind of associate momentum with risky. And, but you know, the reality is value actually has these longer periods in history where it doesn't work. But the point is like, unless you're like some crazy believer in value that, you know, show me my portfolio in 40 years and, and uh, I'll, and I'll see the return, but I don't care about what happens in the middle. Like people are all, you know, we're all people. We all have behavioral issues. We're all looking at what's not working and we want to abandon what's not working. And so the reality is I've, I've come over, I was kind of a value guy earlier in my career, but now I'm much more of a multi-factor guy. And just because it is kind of a free lunch. I mean, you're getting sort of the same return, but you're at least minimizing these periods where it doesn't work. And so that's the general idea is, is single factor has risks associated with that factor. You can blend some of those away by actually using different metrics within the factor. But still, they're pretty correlated with each other. The fact, you know, you have a lot of risk within the factor. You start bringing in multi-factors. Now you have at least a smoother return. And by the way, you have nothing close to an index return, especially the type of, you know, focused factor investing we do. So it's not like you're getting rid of that risk, but you're at least making it better. You're making it more bearable because, you know, if, if there's any lesson, you know, from my career, and I know you believe this too, it's that you have to be able to stick with these things through the ups and downs, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's factor investing or something else. If you're going to abandon it during the bad period, you're going to end up worse than an index investor. So a lot of this is bringing these things together and trying to make the ride as smooth as possible and trying to fit that ride with an investor who can take it. That AAA framework that you got average in the middle, you got amazing on one end, you got awful on the other. If you believe in the process, if you trust the process, extra Allen Iverson practice, man, like if you just trust in what you're doing, you got to get through some awful if you're going to get awesome on the other side, but you got to make sure what you're doing is sound. And I think that's probably why we're both drawn to these systematic strategies. It makes it somehow palatable to, even though it's never comfortable to sit through some of those difficult periods, even, I mean, look at where we are in 2023 and the stuff that's absolutely ripping. Even if you have exposure, like, wouldn't we all love to be have been overweight the NASDAQ or exclusively in those seven stocks since, you know, January 1st, right? Yeah. And I like to, you know, if I'm going to bet on something, I like to bet on something that's sort of, that, that's not influenced by human emotion too much. And then I can look over a long period of time and say it works. That doesn't mean it's going to keep working. And we, we may talk about that later, but I like to make that bet. And to me, if I'm betting on an, if I'm going to be active and, I, and again, I'm a believer, most people should be passive, but if I'm going to be active, like I don't like betting on a fund manager. There's just too many. I mean, obviously the, the overall track record of fund managers is bad, but there's also too much risk that they're going to change something. You know, I, I know myself, even as a factor investor, I have all kinds of problems with my emotions and trying to, you know, making the, the wrong decisions at the wrong time. And I just think as people, we can't avoid that. So even someone who's really, really good, I think they're going to potentially have problems. And so that's what drew me to factor investing is at least 
I don't know this is going to keep working over the long term for sure, but I at least know that it's a systematic process. I at least know what, what led to the return in the past. I can keep doing in the future. And, and to me, that's what attracts me to it. I, let's let's talk about that for just a second, because I think that that is a super, super interesting idea. And I think you just this is why we're having this conversation. You're helping me uncover some things that I'm thinking about. Factor therapy with Jack Forehand, <laughs> the Esther Perel. I charge $75 an hour. Yeah, great. See if my insurance will take this. Um, so the avoiding active managers in favor of like active factor decisions. And I want to just throw something on the table because this is a big part of how I think. And you differentiated between this earlier. When choosing an active manager for a direct investment, a private investment, something else, a lot of times what we'll look for and, and my partner, Lee Bodoris, is like the master of this. I love talking to him about this. It's you're looking for, is there a market-based like misopportunity that somebody's taking advantage of, which is usually not a factor. So it's like, uh, I'll, I'll pick on Buffett for a second. It's like the the Buffett. Do you remember that paper a few years ago? It might've been a Cliff Asnes paper, the Buffett's Alpha paper. Do you remember that one? Is that the Superstar Investors thing? Or no, is that something else? Is that the one where they kind of looked back at factors and tried to break down Buffett's returns? Yes. It's, it's the factor D and where they basically said Buffett is just like levered low beta. And I'm probably bastardizing this completely. Yeah, it was like a blend of value thing. and quality with leverage effectively, I think is what they got to. 100%. Value and quality with leverage, maybe with a slight slice premium, but probably not at all. So anyway, like, like this idea that something Buffett can do because of the insurance companies and floats is not something that anybody can do in that scale, really. Like maybe you could buy like a levered value quality fund and like reproduce Buffett results going forward. Maybe, maybe not. But it was an interesting way to like look back and see that decomposition. And I think a lot, and we see it more in like private markets than we do in public markets probably for the last 20 years, like post post tech bubble uh, and then the, the boom of private equity and everything. But it's, if you're not going to be passive and you're going to choose to be active, it kind of seems like, you could have factor biases or you better find something that's structural in markets to seize an opportunity. Just do you have any thought on that? Yeah. Well, also that gets to the idea of systematic and quant are two different things. And to your point on active Great. managers, I mean, please, I think, please define this. For yeah. Me. Well, like active manager, a person can be systematic, like an active manager can be exploiting a certain thing. They can keep exploiting that certain thing, but that certain thing doesn't have to be quantitative. And so that if I was looking for active managers, I would look at the exact same thing you're doing, which is do they have a systematic process they're following to the best of their ability? That does not have to be quantitative. Um, it's the guys that are out there, you know, picking the random stocks and don't have, you know, any process. Those are the guys that typically break down. Or if they have a process that doesn't necessarily make sense or isn't exploiting anything that's going to continue over time, like those are the guys that typically break down. The guys that have a systematic process that exploits something that should they should be able to continue to exploit going forward. And that could be anything. I mean, that could be other people's behavior. It can be that they're you know, they're more patient than everybody else and they're going to wait it out no matter what. I mean, that, that's something that they can exploit. So if they're exploiting something like that, I mean, I think that's great. And those are the types of active managers I would look for. Yeah, that's really interesting. And again, I just, I think I'm increasingly amazed by it in like our family office and like endowment and institution type work where looking at like private markets and there's just stuff that it's just not a big enough. It's like the thing, it's if it's not a big enough opportunity for like Walmart to solve it or like somebody to solve it at a really huge scale, sometimes there's just a size of an opportunity that doesn't deserve to be, you know, these are just businesses at the end of the day, right? 
Yeah, you know, the less people that are competing, and I think Mobison's work has shown this too, like the, the less people that are competing, those are the places you want to be. And, you know, when you get into private markets, I mean, those are, I mean, obviously that, that there's challenges in private markets and private markets are expensive right now, but obviously like my edge on NVIDIA is going to be very different than the edge I can get like in a private market. Well, we'll, we'll wait for the next episode for all your insights and <laughs> onto NVIDIA. I don't have an edge on NVIDIA, by the way. <laughs> so. Man. Um, so another, another question. So single factor is going to look way different than the market. Multi-factor, you're getting close. How do you close the gap in your mind between, like if you, if you theoretically had all the factors, you would just have the market again. So how do you think like about getting up close enough to still have the diversification of multi-factor, but not have just become the market? Yeah, this is, this is kind of a sliding scale. And we talked about this with Mathieu Pellerin when we had, you know, you joined us on Excess mm -hmm. Returns for that interview. You know, when, when they looked at using factors in, in retirement, they got very close to the market. Like they, they didn't get very far on the focus side. They got very close to the market because they were worried about, you know, blowing up retirement. If things goes wrong, things go wrong with the factor. So it's really in the eye of every person, but you're, the way you looked at it is a good way to look at it, which is I can kind of get all the way to the market if I just like apply all of this, or I could be incredibly focused. And again, it comes back to whoever's doing it. And so what we do is we try to fit that to the investor. I mean, the types of investors that invest with us are looking for focused strategies. So we're not going to be running the stuff that gets very, very close to the market. But obviously, the, the more factors you blend, you get more into that diversified thing. Um, you know, and, and the more stocks you add, you get also more into the, the diversified area. And, and that's there's really no answer to that. But also, there, there's a trade off there in theory with with the premiums. So you know, we should be able to generate better long-term returns with a more focused approach to the factor, but it's going to be much harder to stick with for most people. And so they won't realize those returns. As we get close to the market, we should be, we're not going to generate as much of a premium. We might be able to generate a slight premium, but it's going to be way, way easier to stick with. So in general, it's like the more factors you use, the, the more diversified it is, the easier it is to stick with. The more stocks you use, the easier it is to stick with. And you, you also can do things like, I'm not a fan of market cap weighting, but obviously as you if you incorporate some degree of market cap weighting, you look more like the market. Um, so, you know, or if you start with market cap weighting and then it, as, as opposed to equal weighting, and then you adjust with the factors, you look more like the market. So there's a lot of things you can do and, and there's no really right answer. Like I think a portfolio that looks a lot like the market, but has tilts towards the factors can be really good. You know, you, you can get a slight premium over time. It's easy to stick with. I mean, that can be great for most people. So another, not to keep invoking research papers, but well, probably the one that, I think, or one of the papers that impacted me the most was that value and momentum everywhere paper that Asnes and I think it was Asnes and AQR did back like, this is not long after the financial crisis, if not maybe before. And it had to do with like how you can track value and momentum across stocks. And I think they did currencies and types of fixed income and everything else. And it was really, really eye-opening. And I bring that up because I want to invoke this idea of how do you think about combining factors. And I always kind of think of like value and momentum. They're good diversifying factors traditionally because they tend to zig when the other zags a little bit and you can rebalance between the two and whatever. And maybe they're like, they're my chocolate ice cream and peanut butter ice cream, like blended together. Whereas like value and quality are kind of just like chocolate and vanilla. Like you're there, they're work, but they're, they're maybe not as exciting as chocolate and peanut butter in some ways. How do you think about the mixing and matching of what factors you combine and why? Yeah, so we start with what do we want to combine? So obviously there's a bunch of factors out there, you know, and a lot of them don't make a lot of sense, but you've, you've sort of got your main factors. You've got your value and your momentum, 
and then quality and low volatility. That's at least the way we look at it. And we look at value momentum on a higher level than the other ones. We think there's a bigger premium associated with those than there is with quality and low volatility over time. And also, I think the explanations for value and momentum are a little better. So I think there's probably a better chance they're going to keep working. Like people struggle, you know, when you start talking about like, well, if I'm going back to this risk base and this behavioral based thing, like why would quality work? Like, and we're not going to get into that here, but like, why would quality stocks be riskier than the market? Or why would people systematically misprice quality stocks? Like it, there's explanations and we could go into the weeds. I, I on have that. a Mobus and Moat paper that I can remember. <laughs> right. But so, so anyway, we start at the high level with value momentum being the primary things, quality and low volatility being secondary. And then in terms of how you combine them, there's really two different approaches. And one of these things I have in investing, and I've probably said this on other podcasts, is when there's two people that are way smarter than me that differ on something, I can pretty much assume there's no answer. So if you look at the big quant shops, they differ in how to do this. So the two things I'm going to present right now, there's no right answer as to how to do it, but there's two methods. And so one is the sleeve method. And so what the sleeve method is, is basically I build a value portfolio. I build a momentum portfolio. I don't, they don't, I don't care about one when I'm building the other. And then I just put them together. And so the advantage of that is I know my value stocks are really cheap because I just built the value portfolio on its own. I know my momentum stocks have a lot of momentum because I built that on its own. Um, and then the other approach is what I, we call it the consensus approach. I think a lot of people call it the integrated approach, which is I'm going to try to find stocks that have exposure to all the factors. So it would be the greatest thing in the world if I could find the cheapest stock that has the highest quality, that has tons of momentum, that also isn't volatile. But that doesn't happen in the real world. So there's trade-offs. But what I'm trying to do is I, I'm trying to get more in the middle. I'm trying to say like my previous approach, my value portfolio, those stocks may have had zero momentum. My momentum stocks, those may have been crazy expensive. I'm going to try to find something in the middle. But what I'm going to do by finding something in the middle is I'm going to give up something on all the other ends. So my value stocks won't be as cheap, but they'll have some exposure to momentum. My momentum stocks won't have as much momentum, but they'll have some exposure to value. And so you kind of end up in the middle there. Um, and there's, there's pros and cons to all of this. Uh, people will say with the first method, with my value, my momentum sleeves, well, although you're getting all your value, you're getting all your momentum, they kind of cancel each other to some degree because the momentum stocks a lot of times won't be cheap. And the value stocks won't have momentum, so they're offsetting each other. You know, whereas in the other approach with the consensus approach, you, you might say, well, I'm not getting all the value exposure I want because in order to get this momentum and this quality and stuff, I have to give some of it up. So there's not really a great answer. I think the long-term, you know, returns on these are, are pretty similar, but th that's the general idea. You know, we actually do both. Um, so going back to my thing before about if, if people who are really smart disagree, there's probably not a, not a right answer. We have portfolios for clients that do both. And, and in different situations with different specific clients, we'll do it in different ways. And I think very important to mention, if you're doing it either way, we tend to, when we're building stuff for people, favor an integrated approach, but just because a lot of our clients were trying to minimize, we don't want unnecessary turnover. So we don't want to have to be trading all the time. And if you, I mean, just say what it is, like what's the turnover in the momentum portfolios? Historically, whichever way you choose to measure momentum you're going to trade a lot more and you're probably going to have more trades in like a value alone portfolio too in the sleeve approach. That's just a reality of how you track the factor. Yes. Yeah, no, I think, I think the integrated approach will have lower turnover. Um, you know, I think, yeah, versus I think the sleeve approach will have higher turnover. So I, I think that's right. As a blanket statement. And it doesn't yeah. mean that that's better or worse. It's just, it goes back to building the thing for the people you're building it for and having it being the thing they want and can stick to. Like if we have, you know, 200 plus stock, like if we have two sleeves and they each have a hundred stocks in them and we're trading the hell out of them, like that's one of those things where some people are going to be like, what are you really doing here? <laughs> yeah. And to some degree, the bigger 
driver of turnover is how you actually do it. So going totally. back to like the integrated approach, like let's see, I, let's say I have an integrated score is the way I do it. So I create a score with all these factors. I combine it together right. and then I rank every stock. Well, I come up, you know, I start my portfolio. I come up to my next rebalancing date. What do I do? Like if, if I'm building a 30 stock portfolio, it's probably not that smart to say if one of the stocks went to 31, let's get that out and let's get something back in. Because the, the 31st stock is going to look very much like the 30th stock in terms of their, their score. So the, a lot, all, most of us that are quants have some sort of system where we say, all right, how far do I let it fall? And, you know, with, with our system, we try to, for taxable portfolios, we at least try to integrate taxes as well to say like, all right, here was my score when I added it. What's the score now? What's the tax implications of selling it now? You know, do I have, have I held it 11 months and I have a hundred percent return? Well, I probably want to hold it one more month to, to get a long-term gain treatment on that. So to us, that's the way we do it, but that really determines the turnover more than when you're doing the sleeve or the integrated, because inside of those sleeves, I can do the same thing. Inside of my value sleeve, I could say, all right, I've got 10 value stocks. Like I don't want to necessarily want to sell it when it goes to 11. I want to have some range there where it can fall more and, and I still keep it in the portfolio. And that is the hardest, well, everybody who wants to do this type of thing should have to build like a statistical scoring methodology at some point for the horribly humbling and just the reality of it. And so you can experience that when you have a hundred percent gain and you're at 11 months and like four days and then like something horrible happens and you're like, why? And we're doing this in a lot of ways, the same way a person would do it. I mean, a person's going to have that same problem. Like a fund manager is like, all right, I've got, you know, I've got 11 months. I've got this gain. What do I do? Like, well, what I would do is I'd probably look at the stock. I mean, in that case, I'm probably not going to sell it, you know, unless something is really bad, but to, like with a simpler example where, you know, I've got my tax situation, I've got my, you know, how I felt about the stock when I bought it and how I feel about it now. I've got my alternatives, other stocks sitting outside of my portfolio that I might like to buy. I've got to weigh all of that together into a buy-sell decision. And all we try to do is we try to take that and put it into a quantitative scoring system because I believe a system will do it better than I will. But we're doing really the same thing like a fund manager would do. I mean, all of us have to make these decisions about what am I buying and what am I selling? What are my alternatives? What's in my portfolio? All that kind of stuff. I think that piece of it, and this is this is a huge part of our due diligence process when we're vetting managers or or strategies or whatever it may be, whether you're a private manager, a public manager, or you're a passive index fund, we're looking at those little decisions because that little scoring and ranking methodology that's going to drive that, especially if you're systematic, especially if you're quantitative, like that's that'll tell you more in many cases about a manager's strategy than anything else. Like not just the buy decisions, but the hold and the sell decisions when faced with changing information over time, because that's what markets do. They change. Yeah. And I think it's, it is important for investors to get in the weeds, to quantitative managers, to your point, because there's so many different ways, like people look at quantitative value manager or quantitative multi-factor manager. You know, if you just look at the public ETFs, the way they're doing it are really, can be really, really different. And so not that there's a right way or a wrong way all the time, but just understanding what they're doing and how they're doing it. And you know, some of this you can't get, some of it you can. If you're speaking to a specific manager, you can. But just understanding the process that they're going through, how are they building their portfolio? How are they making their buy-sell decisions? How are they constructing it? What factors are they using? Like so much of that, you're, you're going to get very different outcomes. And so it's not about finding the right or the wrong approach. It's about understanding how that approach ties to outcomes and, and understanding like the variance of the outcomes that comes with that approach before you go into, you know, buying a specific fund or a specific strategy. And it comes in layers. I, I have to, without, without naming the fund, it was one of those things that I've, 
I've thought about, but then you're in a room with somebody smarter than you, in this case, Lee Bodoris again, and we're talking about, we're talking to this manager and he starts untangling like the decision-making layers at each of those things. Cause parts are quantitative, part was statistical scoring. And another part, there was like a decision process. And he's like, well, what's that decision process? Well, this part of it comes down to the formula. This part goes to a committee. Well, how's the committee make that decision? Do they make it in a day, a week, a month? This is real world due diligence and understanding these things. So you can understand the distribution of outcomes as part of why people hire professional allocators for help understanding it because it's friggin' messy and complicated. Yeah. And also one of the misconceptions about quants is that like there's no human decision making in this stuff. I mean, yes, on the day to day portfolio management, there's no human decision making. I'm not like looking at the output of the model and being like, well, Jack doesn't like this stock. So get this one out of there. But it's all who, wine and codes, right? Right. <laughs> but who determined like what stocks we're going to buy in the first place? Like who built that strategy? You know, if if we're struggling with, you know, is value investing dead? You know, should we incorporate intangible assets into our value strategy? Like who's making that call? Like the manager is making that call. So it's it's you can't say that like all the problems of human beings are removed in quant strategies because we still have to make decisions about what goes into the strategy, whether it gets changed. You know, all of that stuff. I mean, we're not sitting there overriding like the stocks that go in or out, but we're still making decisions all the time. And like, it, it's important. And I'm sure it's important to know the human behind that strategy and make sure that's someone who's going to make the right decision. Yeah. Layers, layers of humans. And this is so something, something I wanted to bring up because I think about it too. And I think it's just a relatable analogy is I come at, and I think I haven't had any music references. So, you know, I have to sneak something in here. <laughs> the like multi-factor through the musical lens and people will think like, oh, you have two versions of the same song. So I could take Nirvana doing Smells Like Teen Spirit and then I could take uh, Weird Al doing his Smells Like Nirvana thing. And genre is not, here's a grunge alternative rock song and here's like a polka anthem. Uh, but genre is made up of like factors. And inside of those factors, you have instruments or timbres, you have uh, tempo, you have the word choices, you have all the stuff that like informs what becomes genre. And it's really interesting to me to think about like, like the song that you hear, I can take Smells Like Teen Spirit and I can hear the Nirvana version. I could hear the postmodern jukebox version where they do it as like a 60s orchestral pop song. I can hear Weird Al doing the parody and throwing an accordion in there. I can hear the Bad Plus doing it as like a uh, jazz trio or whatever the size of the band was at that point. And it's like you can emphasize different things with a different human element and different process at each of those individual layers. And you still have the same song. You still have an investment in markets and whatever it is. But it's like multi-factor is just a way to understand the layers that make up the genre or the thing that you're investing in. And I think that that's, it's so informative. It's so educational to us as allocators and then people in picking what they like. Cause it's okay to like smells like teen spirit by Nirvana and hate it by when Tori Amos covers it or vice versa. Maybe you love the Tori version and you hate the Nirvana version. It's interesting. Like listening to you talk about music because you think about music in the same way I think about factor investing. Like you can, I just see song, basically you see song and you see all the different stuff that went into creating the song or the different versions of the song or the decisions they made in that song, which could have gone different directions. Like that's the same way I look at factor strategies. I mean, a lot of people just look at like multi-factor strategy. Like I can't do that. After like all the work I've done it over the years, I can't do that. Like I need to know all the other stuff that went into that. And, and I know that multi-factor strategy could be completely different. Like you say, like different people doing the same songs with different arrangements, like multi-factor investing is a song. And there's so many different ways you can, you can make that song. 
And so for me, like most people just look at it and like, oh, oh well, multi-factor investing. Like I can, I, I want to see all the stuff that went into that song because I know it's going to be a really different song depending on what they did. And how cool is it once you understand the factors to then be able to like zoom out, swap other things in, in your mind or reimagine the composition in another way? Because that's what we get when we get that Buffett's alpha paper. That's what we get when we get value and momentum everywhere. Or we look at some of like Wes's Brooks or the magic formula. It's this reimagining using the same building blocks to solve for things that either rhyme with or, or diversify against or can be put into portfolios for for market portfolios and and assets. Yeah, this this is dangerous, by the way, too, because you know when, when you know like all the oh, details, this is more than dangerous <laughs> and all the decisions you make. Like th this kind of gets into the idea of data mining that we have in, in you know in testing here, which is basically I can keep testing stuff over and over again until I get the outcome I want, but ultimately that strategy is not likely to work because it probably doesn't make sense, and I'm probably just continuing to test random factors until I find what works. So it can be really dangerous to know like all of these things or to be focused on all of these different decisions because you have to kind of zoom out at times and say, all right, the overall song is what I'm trying to create here. I want to create the best song possible. Sometimes like you could end up with this jumbled up song where you made 30 decisions that all seemed right on the surface, but they did end up being a very good song when you put them together. I can have the amazing Nirvana cover, but then in just like like thinking about this uh, before we recorded today, I'm just like, oh, like thinking through these Smells Like Teen Spirit covers. And there's a thousand, you like go to YouTube, punch in Smells Like Teen Spirit cover, and all of a sudden you're going to see all these people. And I, I promise you, there are a bunch of dreadful, like horrible, we really tried to like almost recreate Nirvana, but put our little twist on it and like it sucks. And that's the thing too. You like you can have a bad value strategy or you can have a closet indexing strategy that puts value in the title or momentum in the title or quality in the title. It, there's a million people who have tried to be Buffett. And now it sounds like, you know, whatever Justin sang on the last podcast. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Like everybody, you know, if you listen to value managers, you know, they, they all invoke Buffett and Graham and their style is like Buffett and their style is like Graham, but none, none of them produce the results you know, Buffett and Graham produced. So you're right. I mean, you can label things, a lot of different things, but you know, one of the things when you, when you dig into the details of this stuff and when you've done it as long as I have, like you don't, you don't pay any attention to labels because there's so many funds that say value that are not value, or at least not value in the way I would look at value. Um, pe people like to use certain terms and certain names because they know it attracts a certain audience, but that doesn't, it, it's all about the details behind that. You know, just thinking about the term value, you know, what could, I mean, value could be, Value with quality. Value could be 20 stocks with a really focused guy. Value could be, I take the S&P 500 and I slightly tweak the weightings, you know, with value. I mean, value could be something that's not even value at all. Like somebody just calls it value. But when you look at their holdings, you're like, none of this stuff's even cheap. Um, you know, and, and as Michael Mobison always says, you know, value, value is basically buying something for less than it's worth, period. Um, and it may, it may not be that in the quant world, but like that, that's what it is in reality. So, but people might associate that, like you might call a value fund where you're just trying to buy stuff for less than you think it's worth with a value fund that's buying ultra cheap stocks. And those are two different things. So yeah, that, that's a great example. Like the, the terms can mean so many different things depending on how people are using them. I invoke Shit's Creek. I believe the quote is, I like the wine, not the label. That was a great show, by the way. I just got into that recently. Uh, it's, it's a very good show. Uh, it's very uh, funny. I think, I, I, I think, uh, I think my fiance and I have watched that at least twice all the way through, if not three times. It's so good. All right. So I want to, and maybe, maybe this is like the area 
where we end, but this is what you're helping me think through is I've actually been thinking about a lot of these. I think about the multi-factor approach we use and I've been using for a long time in building portfolios and how it also relates to the planning side because I'm fascinated with the diversification benefits that you can get from just the different timeframes of how these factors work. So just the idea that you've been able to, and we saw it on finally on fast forward in the last couple of years where rebalancing away from a momentum factor and like into value through the COVID thing, it was one of those like, holy crap, this still works moments. Like, of course it still works. That goes right back to like the, the persistent and pervasive part that you mentioned at the beginning, but it's amazing when it works. So I'm thinking about it in the financial planning sense and like places it shows up over and over again is we'll work with clients who have like a really steady job. Like they work for the post office or they work for something, uh, they work for a government entity or something where their career is relatively safe. And sometimes those people, despite their wiring, want to do higher risk investments. We saw this with people like with stable jobs being interested in crypto as a more extreme example in the last few years, not advocating that, just saying like, here's an interesting thing. The job someone's drawn to is not necessarily the investment strategy they're drawn to, and they're not correlated which in some cases can actually be really like return enhancing on that trade-off between human capital and investment capital. Uh, conversely, if you're somebody who works like in our industry, in the business industry, and our friend Meb Faber has said this a million times, like don't go put all your money in the market because the same time your job sucks, the market probably sucks too. So this multi-factor approach to the investment capital and the human capital side fully occupying my brain for several years now. Do you have any thoughts or insights or something you'd like to hear more about in that space that I can focus on? Yeah, well, you know, just just to your point, I mean, th this is something nobody does. Like nobody thinks about human capital when they build their investment portfolio. And, and to your point, you know, someone who's 25 years old, who's got an investment portfolio, like their, their investment portfolio means almost nothing in terms of if you look at the actual value of all of their assets, like their human capital is worth a lot of money. You know, especially somebody who's going to go on and have a very successful career. Like you take the present value of whatever they're going to make over their life. Like that, that's everything. And so right. I like what you were talking about in terms of the idea of, you know, even in building factor approaches, you want to think about like, what is this person's human capital? Is it very stable? And, you know, to your point, like somebody who has a very stable human capital, it's like a bond. You know, they can take more risk in their investment portfolio. Now their mentality may not be right for that. So you still may not be able to do it. But in a pure theory, from a pure theory standpoint, you can do that. Or somebody, you know, if we're building a factor portfolio for someone who works like in the high tech industry, you know, we, we may not, we may want to use a factor like value. We may want to use something that is very different than what they're seeing in their human capital. So if they're getting a bad outcome in their human capital, you know, we get another 2000 or something. Well, in, in 2000, you got a really good outcome in the value, you know, factor. So I, I think that does make sense. It does make sense to look at what people are doing or, you know, if they're concentrated in a certain sector, we'll even, you know, you can do things like that where, Let's let, you know, underweight that sector in their portfolio because they, they've got a lot of risk in that sector. And, you know, your point on, on investment managers is really interesting because it's, it's this dichotomy that, so for me as a factor investor, like let's, let's say I run a factor investing strategy and I invest in value. Um, what, what I should do as an investment manager and what I do do is, is you should invest along with your clients. You know, you, you want to put your skin in the game with your clients, but from looking at myself, from like building my portfolio standpoint, I should do the exact opposite of that. I should do the opposite of what I do for my clients because I, I, I wanna, I'm making a personal bet with my business on whatever my investment approach is. And so if, if that goes down you know, in the tank or whatever, you're, you're tying everything to that. 
um, if you also invest in the same stocks. Now, all of us do it anyway, and it's really important to you know invest along with your clients. But it's interesting. You know, we talked about this with Adam Butler too. Like he does the same thing I do, which is he's got his money, like a lot of his money invested in their own strategies. But he's like, that that's a risk for me. I really should have, you know, they have very, you know, strategies that are very consistent over time. They do like risk parity type stuff. He should really invest like in beta. You know, he, he should invest a ton of money in the stock market because if he's wrong and, you know, stocks and bonds have great returns over the past decade, well, then his business is not going to do as well. So it's like this balance you have to strike. You know, most people I think should probably invest along with their clients. But if, if I were to go come to you as a financial planner and I were to say, Matt, you know, you don't care about my clients. You're my financial planner. You're not, you're going to say to me, you know, don't do that. Don't invest in the same stuff you're, you invest your clients in. Invest in something that's uncorrelated with what you invest your clients in. Because again, looking at the human capital and the investment capital and bringing them together. A key realization I've had, and this has only been developing over the last year in thinking about this is, and this goes back to probably like our, our, our first episode, the, the calendar, the cash flow, and then the balance sheet. And when you take that CCBS framework and you put it together, as we've revamped our planning document that we use where we capture this and then help report it back to people to the whole purpose of the exercise, just how do you make confident decisions? You get everything on the table that matters to you and you do it. And something that's been in the evolution of this document is what you just said. You kind of have, you have your your investment capital, you're, you're like, you have your calendar as it relates to the stuff that happens in your life. But your financial cash flow statement and your human capital cash flow statement are different. Just like your human capital balance sheet is different than your investment capital balance sheet. And I say that in the sense, and you really ticked this in my brain when you said it, the 25-year-old is just starting at work. It's There's not a balance sheet that the present value of all those future cash flows like lives on in a tangible way. You can't borrow against that equity. You can't, like you still got to go out there and earn the money. It's not a, it's not a, a savings account. Like you, you have to go build the piggy bank and fund it for that to happen. And so thinking of these two separate tracks, the investment track and the human capital track and how those evolve in those three categories with a factor overlay, which is really just a behavioral overlay, really, really, really interesting. You've, you got me working here overtime, Jack. What interests me about what you said tonight. is, you know, you're, you're right about, you shouldn't show that on a balance sheet because obviously I stopped working tomorrow. I decided to go sit home on the sofa. Like I no longer have that value, but it is something like I would think like in the planning process would be very interesting just to show to someone as an example, like, you know, if you make this amount of money and you it goes up this much over time, like this is what it's worth to you today. Not like as a specific number, but just to put it in context of like what's in your investment portfolio to show someone that this is worth way more, you know, when you're 25 years old than whatever it is you're holding in the S&P 500 right now, just to get that point across. Like it, it would be interesting to do like a very inexact calculation because I think so many people like definitely people who are in the financial planning industry, but even financial planners like miss this human capital part. Like they don't take it into account, like when they're building portfolios, they don't like make their clients understand what it's actually worth and how important it is in the total picture. Because, you know, we say this all the time, like if, if you're going to get rich in your life, the odds of you getting rich, I mean, you could be Warren Buffett and I mean, you could put $100 in the S&P 500 when you're two years old and like watch it grow to whatever it grows or put $100 a year from when you're two years old and watch it grow to whatever it grows. But most people, that's not the way they do it. Most people build wealth through their human capital. And so you could argue that really is the most important thing they're doing. Their investment portfolio is certainly helpful and can certainly help build wealth over time. But for most people, that human capital is the most important piece. 
the human capital and how you shape the balance sheet from the surplus in your hopeful cash flows literally determines everything in the outcome. And the financial planning industry, I think, does a reasonable job of helping people understand this. Like once people get to retirement age, I think I know we do exceptional work around people as they get closer to that and they do the consideration call call today with people where it's just like you don't have to work five more years. Like if you're just going to work two more years, like it's an it's a push on if this is going to make any difference in your lifetime consumption. And then especially as we get into like the multi-generational planning work we do, this this thing like really plays in in a much more clear way. But the better people can think about that because then we talk all the time, like your outcomes improved by your savings rate more than anything else if you're just trying to build wealth and you're not born into a, a billionaire family or something. So like if you're trying to amass your own set of wealth, then the human capital decisions are going to have the biggest impact. Maybe you're going to knock the ball out of the park with like a great investment or something else. You're going to start a company. You're going to get equity in something, whatever. And that's that's the case. You're going to have equity in real estate. There's lots of ways to do that. But that conversion of the human capital and how you pay attention to which things you're leaning into and why, I think, cherry on top of this conversation, that's where multi-factor comes in. If you can start to decompose what these returns in your investment capital and your human capital are made up of, then you can lean into the things that you are already hardwired to do and earn alpha on top of what you're already hardwired to do. It's just being a better version of yourself. It's a multi-factor, the ultimate life hack. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what you said with outcomes is so important. Like we, we all, you know, you and I do different things, but we, we, in a lot of ways we do the same thing in that we're trying to produce outcomes for people. And so you mentioned like telling someone they can retire two years early. Like, that's really cool. Like that's something they may not have, if they didn't find a financial planner, they may not have realized they could retire early. So, and so going back to factors too, when we talked to bring back to the Mathieu Pellerin interview we did, like his whole idea of using factors in retirement was to generate better outcomes for people. If I can generate a little bit better return and I can do that without, you know, increasing sequence risk or causing problems, I can pre create better outcomes for people. They may be able to retire sooner. So the, the, it all comes back to that. And, you know, as a quant investor, you can get caught in the weeds of, you know, which factor am I using? And I'm sure there's weeds of financial planning you can get caught in as well. But all of this at the end of the day comes back to outcomes. And, and I think that's probably a good thing to end on is that, you know, really, really what in everything you think about in investing, it's all we're trying to achieve something and trying to tie whatever we're doing back to that something is, is the key to everything, I think. Practice, man. We're talking about practice. So I guess we can we can we can wrap up on that. Um, you know, Justin usually does the closing, but I, I'll I'll close it out here, and we'll we'll have Justin back for the smooth closing next time. But uh, yeah, thank you. It was good to uh, it was good to be on the other side of the questions. But uh, I'll also enjoy next week not having to worry about that and just asking stuff for you. This is fantastic. You really helped me think through a bunch of these things, and I just think this is this is such an important topic, and it's it's really the genesis of why we're having these conversations together because this is one of the one of the overlaps for all our, the differences we have in what we do day to day, where we're both obsessed with decomposing things with this type of a framework. Really cool. We, should, Thanks we have, for we have a shared this. obsession. <laughs> Fantastic. And that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you everybody for joining us and we'll see you next week. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. 
Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.